As we come this morning to, uh, or I should say back to, our study of 1 John, it is important to be reminded of the, the primary uh, reason and concerns of this letter. Uh, John wanted to make sure that the people who read this letter understood the Incarnation. He wanted them to understand that um, they, they needed to love God and love their brothers and sisters in Christ. He also wanted them to understand that they needed to live in righteousness, specifically in terms of the relationship between sin and being a child of God. So as we continue in the section of the letter this morning that we began a few weeks ago, it's a section that if you have a Bible, it's typically titled there, Living as God's Children. We're going to be specifically looking at today uh, the relationship between sin and being a child of God. And so I want you to remember as we read this passage this morning um, that the purpose of John is listed in Um, or 1 John is listed in chapter 5, verse 13. Listen to this. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And so as we think about that purpose then, what is the issue of sin that that is here in this text that we're going to read in light of who we are as the children of God? So let's draw our attention then to 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Let us pray together. Father, thank you for your word. I I ask that it would be seared upon our hearts. That as we study it this morning, we would understand it. And that we would be able to live our lives in light of it. So thank you, dear Lord. And I just ask for your spirit to be with us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you were to read various commentators um, who have written on and commentated on 1 John, they're going to tell you that one of the hardest things to kind of wrestle with is the structure of John. It's not easy. 
And so even as we come to this text this morning, we may be asking the question, what does this mean? What is this about? Well, that's why we're here and we're going to go through it. But I wanted to focus you this morning specifically in terms of the relationship between sin and being a child of God. John's argument here, as John Stott notes, focuses on the purpose of Christ's first coming, which was to remove sins and destroy the works of the devil. In Stott's commentary, he provides a, a very helpful outline of John's, John's argument in this passage. He notes that we need to carefully observe anytime we read this letter of John, we need to observe how he repeats himself and he, and he refocuses our attention to give us just a little bit of a different understanding of the text, a deeper dive so that we may have a fuller understanding of what he's trying to communicate. And so here in the chart that you have before you, see verses 4 through 7 and then verses 8 through 10. So the introductory phase of, or, or phrase of each of these sections is everyone who sins. And then on the right side, he who does what is sinful. And then in the theme, he says, the theme here is the nature of sin as lawlessness. And then in verse 8, he says that the origin of sin is of the devil. So you see how it goes deeper into an understanding of the text. So what is the purpose of Christ appearing? He appeared so that he may take away our sins. And then in verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And then finally, Stott points out the logical conclusion. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning, but then in verse 9, no one who is born of God will continue to sin. So again, you see essentially the same argument. John's making the same argument, but with a different emphasis for a deeper understanding and unfolding for us. The issue, however, is when we get to that last section there, the logical conclusion. Listen again to verse 6. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Look at verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in Him, and He cannot keep on sinning because He has been born of God. So what is the issue here? Well, this is shocking to us. Why would it be shocking? Well, first of all, these statements are alarming because we know that we sin. We know that. As a matter of fact, every week as we come into worship, we have a confession of our sin together. It's part of our liturgical practice. And so each week we come in and we look at our own hearts. We evaluate our hearts before the Lord and we confess our sins. Hopefully we not only do it in this room here, but we also do it in our, in our quiet times with the Lord as well. The second thing that, that is shocking is that this, these verses appear to be a direct contradiction to John himself. And in all honesty, to the rest of the Bible. Because the Bible teaches that Christians do sin. 
We see this in, a, in this letter, for example, in uh, chapter 1, verses 8 through chapter 2, 1. And we see it also in chapter 5, 16 through 17. Not only this, but in this particular letter, we are, he repeats over and over again that we are not to sin. Now, this would be useless and needless if we could not sin or if we did not sin. So John must mean something a little deeper here. We must dig a little deeper to understand what he's communicating to us and what it means for us as his children. So today, I'm bringing before you actually an outline uh, from the former rector of St. Helen's Bishop's Gate uh, by a man by the name of Dick Lucas. Dick Lucas I did a preaching class that I went to years ago, and I have found his teaching on this very helpful, so I'm going to steal, bag, and borrow from his outline today. And so what I want us to look at as we consider this text today is this. Number one, what did Christ come to do? What did he come to do? Secondly, what is a believing Christian? What is a believing Christian? And then number three, What is the sin issue then of this passage? So, what did Christ come to do? First, if you'll look in verse 5, you see that he says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. A few weeks ago, my family and I, you know, when we first came under quarantine, watched the new uh, 2019 animated Um, edition of Pilgrim's Progress. It's based on that old classic book by John Bunyan, the Puritan. If you haven't seen it, it's really a great, uh, wonderful adaptation. But you may remember in the story, the story is about Christian and, and the author of the story is having a dream about how all this unfolds with Christian. But he's dreaming about Christian and Christian is the pilgrim of the Pilgrim's Progress. And so he opens up a book which represents the Scriptures. And there he is introduced to the law and thus to his own sin. And he cries out as anyone would, what shall I do? So in light of the burden brought on by the revealing weight of sin, and in the story this is pictured by a pretty sizable weight on his back that that he could not with all his effort and with all his great strivings, he could never remove that weight. It's it's, a solid picture of the weight of sin on his back that the author tries to describe. And so this points out a biblical reality that redemption must come from outside of himself. He needed a righteousness that was not of his own. He needed an exchange of that weighty sack of sin on his back for an alien righteousness acceptable in the sight of God. And so for Christian and for us, there is only one place to find righteousness like that. And that is at the foot of the cross. The evangelist in the story, and that's his name, evangelist, points him the way. He points him the way to go. And in the crucial moment in his life, when he comes to the cross, when he finally gets there, we read Bunyan's description. Listen to what Bunyan says. 
He ran till he came to a place somewhat ascending. And upon that place stood a cross. And a little below at the bottom a tomb. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up with the the cross, his burden loosened from his shoulders. And it fell off his back. And it began to tumble down that that, uh, ascension. And so it continued until it came to the mouth of the tomb where it fell in. And I saw it no more. This illustration here vividly reminds us that Christ appeared to take away our sins. He appeared to release that weight of burden of sin from us. But there's more here in the text. Look at verse 8b. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So Christ not only takes away our guilt and our shame of sin, but He also destroys the work of the devil in our lives. The author of Hebrews writes in chapter 2, verses 14 through 15, No one less than the Son of God appeared to set man free from the power of Satan. And this should bring to mind the promise that runs all the way back to Genesis 3. Where God promised Adam, I am going to send one to crush the head of the serpent. And that's the reason Christ came. He came to destroy the work of Satan. And so John's desire for us then is to live in this reality that Christ indeed, He takes away our guilt, He takes away the shame of sin, and He also destroys the works of the devil. That is what Christ came to do. And that is what we could not do. Only Christ could do that. So the next thing that I want you to look at, since Christ did that for us, now we ask the question, what is a believing Christian? What is a believing Christian? Look down at verse 6 with me. First of all, we see that a Christian is one who abides in Christ. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. And so those who abide in Christ are the ones who, they recognize their sin. And they see it through the eyes of, of God's holy law. And then they, they reach out to Christ as Savior and they trust Him to forgive their sins. And that's, it's, it's, again, it's going back to the pilgrim um, who's looking at the cross. We go to the cross of Christ. We trust Him to forgive our sin. And we receive the righteousness of Christ by grace alone. And then finally, those who are abiding in Christ are the ones who then look to the Lord. They allow the Word of God to fill their hearts and their minds and to direct their wills and then to transform their affections while resting in the deep, deep love of Christ. They intimately know Him. They dwell in Him. They are in union with Him. 
That's what a Christian is. That's what a Christian looks like. And that's what John is trying to get across to us in this section of Scripture. They are ones who abide in Christ, who hold on to Him, who let the Word of God fill them and direct their lives. And in that, there's a loving affection that comes out of it. Not only toward the Lord, but toward our brothers and sisters in Christ and toward those who do not know Him. Secondly, looking further down here at verse 9, we see that God's seed abides in him because he has been born of God. Now, I have found no better place to kind of look at this. What does being born again mean than the wonderful writer J.I. Packer, that great theologian? This is what he says. The new birth or regeneration is an inner recreating of fallen human nature by the Holy Spirit. It changes one's disposition from lawlessness to godless and and from, I'm sorry, from lawlessness and from godless self-seeking into one of truth and love, of repentance and loving compliance with God's law. It looks to God's values. It enlightens the blinded man to discern spiritual realities. It liberates and energizes the enslaved will for free obedience to God. And I think that's one of the things that we we have to look at when we think about being born again. Our disposition toward the law changes. That's what happened to Pilgrim when he's crying out. He's looking up saying, what am I going to do? The law condemns me. But when our disposition, when we're given a new heart, we look at it more as in, I desire this because I love my Lord. I hope that makes sense. Packer continues, The use of the term new birth emphasizes two facts about the change of a believer. First, it's decisive. The regenerate man has forever ceased to be the man he was. His old life is over. The new life has begun. He is a new creature in Christ, buried with Him out of of reach of condemnation and raised with Him into a new life of righteousness. He's a new person. This is a decisive act. Justification by faith alone. Second, it is a total exercise of divine power. Now, he makes a good point here. Infants do not induce or cooperate with their own procreation and birth, do they? No. Nor can the Christian also, or or one who is dead in their trespasses and sins, also prompt that quickening operation of God's Spirit within them and therefore become a Christian. It is a total work of God. So what we see here is that by means of the work of Christ revealed in the gospel message, the Holy Spirit imparts a new nature to everyone who repents of sin and trusts in Christ. That is what a Christian is. And as one has a new nature, evidence of that nature is seen in the Christian through their changed heart, including loving their brothers and sisters in Christ. 
And so I'll ask you, is that true of you this morning? Is that true of you? Now that we have seen in the passage that Christ has has come to take away our sin and our guilt and shame of sin and destroy the works of the devil in our lives. And now that we have seen what a Christian is, one who is born of God, who who knows Him, who abides in Christ and has a changed nature through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can now turn our attention to what is the sin issue of this passage? What is He talking about? Well, the sin issue comes down to John and how he defines sin in this text. Look with me at verse 4b. It says, sin is lawlessness. While there are definitions of sin in the New Testament that are different from this one, and there's quite a few definitions, this here is the most clear and, and perhaps the most revealing. John Stott notes that lawlessness is the essence not the result of sin. It is the essence, not the result of sin. It is not just a negative failure in terms of missing the mark, which is one definition of sin, or a deviation from that which is right or just, which is you know, another definition of sin. No, lawlessness, lawlessness is an active rebellion against God's known will. And so personally, what this looks like is, is when the statement of sin is is lawlessness, it conveys an attitude of, well, I don't formally recognize the law of God in my life. I I know I live in this world and I know that that, uh, Christ claims to have created this world, but I'm going to live my own way. I don't much care for God being over me or following His law. I'm just not that concerned about it. Wouldn't you agree that it's old, it's outdated, that it's way, 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 way too Victorian? It is the fact that God has, 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 has given us these laws And it doesn't matter because there's cultural issues involved here. God, come on. Can't you get with the progressive program? I mean, it's time to move on from these archaic things that you tell us. That's sort of the personal way that you could look at this where it's lawlessness. Um. Yet at the same time, there are some denominations that have gone so far to say that they don't think that things that are written in God's Word are really what God communicated and really what He means. Um, they would say something like this. You, you, if you listen to God, you're just going to repress yourself. And God would not want you to repress yourself. Surely that's not what God meant. So let's change our denominational rules. Let's change the way we look at things. We need to get more, again, progressive. We need to do what we believe is right and just. On the contrary to 
this idea of lawlessness, John is saying that no one born of God will live in this way. As a matter of fact, the bent of the entire letters, the the bent of the entire Scriptures is as Psalm 119 says, Oh, how I love your law. How I love it. I meditate on it day and night. Now remember, the law in no way saves us. It can't. We don't seek it and keep it to live. No. We live it out. We desire to live it out because of Christ. Because of Him. We want to know His ways. We want to live in them. You know, like for example, you may remember when you were a young man and you fell in love with a fair young maiden. And so you wanted to get to know her. You wanted to know who she was. You wanted to know her ways. You wanted to know what what she thought about and what made her think and you wanted to please her. That's exactly what he's talking about here. How you can please the Lord by loving His law. So we look to Him and we say, Lord, I am weak. I am frail, I stumble, I sin, but, but I'm learning about your ways. I'm learning about how you want me to live. I'm learning about your values. Lord, I'm not sure I can do this. As a matter of fact, I'm sure I can't. But I am yours. I am all yours. And so I give you my heart and my mind and my soul and my all that by your grace, I will... Strive to walk in your way and do as you have told me to do. Now, if you would look down at verse 8, John again takes us deeper and, and he shows us where these voices of lawlessness ultimately come from. He again takes us all the way back to the garden in Genesis chapter 3. And he reminds us that the devil has been sinning in this way from the beginning. Perhaps you remember when he slithers up to Eve and he asks the question, Did God really say that? Did he? Does he have your best interest in mind? Oh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure you really do need to keep His law. I mean, come on. It's okay. He'll forgive you. It's all good. What is He going to do anyway? What is the big deal? If God loved you, He would let you do what you want. This is the voice of the evil one. It is from the pit of hell. And as Steve Brown used to say, you can smell smoke all over it. What he says, John says here is, is whoever makes a practice of sinning in this way is of the devil. Because that's exactly whose voice you are listening to. If you're a person of lawlessness. On the contrary, John presses his thought in verse 9. No one of God 
makes a practice of sinning. In other words, as a child of God, I know that God has His best interest for me. I know that He loves me. And how do I know that? Because He sent His Son. Because He sent His Son to die for us. Think about that just for a moment. How do you prove the love of God? Through His Son. Anyone who would give their son to die for someone that's a re- is rebellious and a sinner. He is showing us His great love for us by giving us Jesus. And that's what He did. Not only this, not only has He proven these things, but He warns us again and again and again throughout the Scriptures. There is an enemy out there. And this enemy desires to kill and to steal and destroy. And He will use His voice to tell you it doesn't matter. But what John is saying here is is that lawlessness does matter before a holy God. In conclusion, verses 7 and 10 uh, come down to the ultimate point of the passage for us. Do you do right or do you not? Not right by the devil's standards, obviously. Not right by any cultural standards that are always changing. Not right by your own personal standard, but right by the only standard that matters. Our Creator God's standards. By this acknowledgement and and seeking His will and working through our own doubts and, and wrestling with our desires, sometimes falling and failing, and yet getting up and walking in His way, By this acknowledgement, John says, you will know that you have eternal life. And so I ask you, what is your bent toward? Is your bent toward following the Lord? Even though you know that you have struggles with sin, even though you again and again catch yourself saying that to that one person or to those many people that you're like, oh, I wish I could take those words back. Do you desire His ways over your own ways? Over the world's ways? Are you seeking to know His will and live by the standards that He has laid out? On the contrary, I ask you to look at them new and afresh. They are freeing. It's so interesting to me that in the fruits of the Spirit, Paul says, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Against such there is no law. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is the good news. The good news is that Jesus appeared in order to take away our sin and to destroy the works of the devil. As the gospel continues as transforming work in the lives of believers, we as His people will, will increasingly bear the resemblance of our Heavenly Father. 
This is God's purpose, that we should be made in the image of His Son. Recreated to worship Him and to glorify Him and to be with Him forever and ever and ever. And so one day when we are brought into His presence, we shall be made perfectly in His likeness. I want you to think about what that might mean. It's so hard for me to consider what it would be like to be perfect. I say this, may such a hope motivate us all the more to purify ourselves and to walk in His righteousness by His wondrous grace. Let's pray and then we'll sing a song about this wondrous grace. Pray with me. Father, thank You so much for Your love and mercy to us. I ask that You would Help us to understand these things. That you would help us to be encouraged by, by living in grace. Toward your righteousness. That it would thrill us. Father, if there are people out there today... And they're unsure and they don't understand. I pray, Father, that they would give their hearts to you. Give their lives to you. That you would open up their minds to see the truth. That they would be drawn into your kingdom as a child of God. And have their eyes open to the new position that they have to the law. Thank you, Father, for your goodness and mercy to us. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.